Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Mind Your Marketing Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Cave Social. Cave Social is a marketing agency based out of Los Angeles that helps companies grow online. So if your company's feeling stuck, you don't know where to turn, you just need, you know, you need a little love online. Head over to cavesocial.com, hit that contact us, book a free consultation. They'll be able to help you out. Cool. All right, today I'm sitting with Aaron Levent. He is the CEO at Network, which is a shopping app, really a retail experience, content experience. It's very cool. I recommend going and getting the app after listening to the show. He brings a lot of experience working on projects like ComplexCon, starting up an events company. Really, really interesting to hear his story, You know how he started off is a graffiti artist and then worked his way, found his way through the business world and started a couple of companies and where he's at today with network. So a lot of lessons to take from this episode. I, I hope you enjoy it. Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Mind Your Marketing Podcast. Today, I'm sitting with Aaron Levant. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So Aaron, you are the CEO of network, which I want to get into. But before we get into that, I want to talk about your story. So you actually started off, correct me if I'm wrong, in graffiti, and that led to some graphic design. Is that correct? Is that how you got started? Yeah, I was um, kind of a up and coming aspiring graffiti writer, street artist in the mid 90s here in LA. And I was also interested in entrepreneurialism. And, you know, I launched like, you know, a self published like graffiti website, and when I was living at my parents' house when I was in high school, and uh, I was trying to figure out how do you make money off of an interest in graffiti, which you know at the time was not a glorified thing as it is today. I ended up getting an internship at an LA-based streetwear brand called Gat. That was where most of my favorite graffiti writers actually worked as graphic designers, and that's kind of what I, my first kind of foray into into business and getting my foot in the door somewhere. Very cool. And you actually started there at Gat when you were what seventeen or eighteen. Yeah, it was 1998 or 1999. So yeah, it was actually probably 16, 17. Yeah. Wow. No, that's a, I always like to just rewind back to be like, okay, where did people start just for the listeners <laughs> of this show who are, you know, anywhere from 20 to people up in their 50s. So it's always good to, to rewind. Talk to me about, you know, your journey from there. You're at GAT, young, bright eyed kid. Walk me through your journey to now where you're at network and really doing some exciting stuff on that platform. Yeah, well, that's uh, over 20 years of um, things that have happened. And uh, just kind of give you the quick Cliff Notes version of kind of how I got from, from A to Z would be, you know, I got my foot in the door as an intern and I was just, you know, this is pre-social media. So it's like when you're seeing this stuff and having access to things behind the scenes, it felt really special at that time, right? So I was getting to work at this company as a kid in high school with all these people that I looked up to, my idols, and, uh, you know, learning and, and experiencing firsthand. And, you know, I just kind of like really dug into that. I ended up coincidentally getting kicked out of high school the year before, and I had really nothing going on. I was homeschooling. I just basically, they first started, hey, put away my magazines, right? And I was storing magazines, delivering packages. And, you know, immediately I started raising my hand saying, hey, I have a little bit of graphic design, web experience. I was doing... Um, after effects, motion graphics, video editing. I just was self-teaching myself all the Adobe creative suite at home. And I just started raising my hand and telling the guy on the company that I could help with various things more than just kind of doing like, you know, mundane uh, intern work. And, you know, I started doing some light graphic design and over the course of a few years, raising my hand, I eventually became, you know, junior graphic designer, head graphic designer, started doing sales, marketing to the point where I actually, you know, just created my own brand with Lewis, the guy who uh, owned the company, who was my first mentor. And, you know, we were 
then becoming successful as a company. We launched a couple new brands together. And through launching and creating these brands and learning the clothing industry, I was meeting a lot of other entrepreneurs in the streetwear clothing space. And we were traveling to a lot of trade shows. And I started looking around at these trade shows after a while as an independent brand, uh, as a customer of the show, an exhibitor, if you will, and saying, you know what? These big, huge corporations, they just take our money. They don't care about us. They shove us in the corner. They put the big brands in the front. They don't get our creativity. And I said, why don't we just start our own show? And in, you know, I had that idea in September of 2002. And there was kind of a movement of some independent trade, fashion trade shows happening in Europe and New York. And I said, hey, there's this huge, it was called ASR Action Sports Retail, this huge trade show that was happening for 30 years where all the biggest surf and skate and streetwear brands would exhibit. And we were a customer of theirs. And I, and I said, hey, let's start a competitor to them and do something across the street at the same time when the industry's in town. And I launched a show in 2003 when I was, I think, 19 called Agenda. Uh, and it was 30 brands. I rented out a Thai restaurant and charged $500 a booth. The other show was charging like $5,000. And 250 buyers showed up to the first one, buyers from all around the world. Bloomingdale's, Fred Siegel, Beams and Ships in Japan. And this idea just kind of resonated. And and then I did it again six months later and I kept doing it in this, this fashion trade show called Agenda that I kind of stumbled into over the course of the next 10 years became the biggest streetwear action sports trade show in the world. And I ended up leaving, you know, within the first year or two, working at the clothing brand to go pursue building this massive events company. And uh, that was kind of the ride of my life. And then um, 2013, I sold that company to uh, Reed Exhibitions, which at the time was the largest trade show company in the world. So Cliff Notes version, but hopefully that uh, helps bring you up to speed. No, totally. So now, well, one, very cool. And just looking at how you can disrupt things and say, hey, we could do this and we can flex our creativity. You know, we don't have to follow the mold the way that it's always been done. So I admire that. Now, walk me to the next thing and walk me to specifically network, which is for those of you who haven't heard of it. It's an online content platform and retail marketplace, but really it's looking like it's giving the young millennial and the Gen Z person a place to feel comfortable and shop and have access and in an air of exclusivity to it, at least from what I see on the outside looking in. But walk me through you know, the ideation around network and what you all are striving to do there. Yeah. So um, to get into the, the kind of the why and the how of network, I might go back just a little bit and kind of talk about the period between the time I sold that trade show company and the time we started network, which is there's a five-year gap in between those things. So I sold that trade show company, which at the time when I sold it, we had over 2,000 brands that were our clients. We had over 10,000 retailers that were our clients and we worked with every major you know, musician, athlete, influencer, media company. So really that experience of meeting all those people really forayed into network eventually. And then after I sold it, I sold it to the company that owned Comic-Con and a company called Read Pop. And they owned every major fan, kind of like fandom event in the world. They own New York Comic-Con, they own PAX, biggest video game show in the world. And they had 500 different events that were like fan focused around these really passionate audiences. And I really spent five years working inside that company, learning about these like fan focused communities that they were serving. And then eventually, the last thing I did there is I formed a joint venture with Complex Media and Read Pop. And I launched something called Complex Con, which is basically like Comic-Con for sneakerheads. And this was a huge light bulb for me because that was really about like you know this really exciting drop culture brands like nike and adidas dropping exclusive sneakers in a content-led environment but it was physical in the irl and towards the end of that which was a great experience i really got focused on digital and i wanted read pop 
and read to become a digitally focused company because I thought that's obviously a huge opportunity in addition to these big consumer events we had. And you know, ultimately, they didn't want to be a digital company. It wasn't their core competency. And coincidentally, around that time, I had met Jimmy Iovine, uh, who's our one of our largest investors here at Network. His son and another co-founder of ours had a comic book store where they were doing these YouTube shows that were kind of like QVC meets Comic-Con. And that was a really interesting concept to me. And they came to me and said they were getting some some movement on this idea, on this business. And Forbes, I think, had written an article about it saying it was an innovative idea. And they really wanted to invest some money and turn this into a real business. Coincidentally, my contract was up at the last job. And I helped write a business plan for what will become Network, which is essentially, you know, QVC for the millennial Gen Z audience where we're aggregating these really passionate fan communities and we're aggregating, you know, it's a, it's a digital marketplace that potentially could have thousands of brands and retailers participating and personalities, influencers, athletes, musicians, celebrities, artists, and we're, you know, aggregating all of these really meaningful product releases in a storytelling environment, which, you know, was a lot of the experience and a lot of the relationships that I had in the previous you know, 20 years of my career through the events and the trade shows and the conventions. And it was like, how do we bring this all together? But in this new digital platform that I was, you know, becoming infatuated with. So that's kind of the the genesis of how it all happened. And, and um, you know, it was this new inkling of idea that, that Jamie, Iveen, and, and my partner Gaston started with, with these really basic YouTube shows out of their comic book shop and taking all my experience and let's put it together and really one plus one equal 10 there. And, uh, you know, now here we are at Network. So I don't know if I answered your question correctly, but that's kind of the you know, no, no, that's, that's great. And I, I like the last part you said there, one plus one equals 10, because I feel like that transcends a lot of businesses where, hey, we just have these ideas or things start to sync up and then you have all your prior experience and the, the light bulbs just start going off, right? Now, I want to talk about really network. And one of the things that I think is so interesting from a marketing perspective and business growth perspective, and that is this idea of exclusivity, particularly around drops and consumer behavior around the drop of a product, right? Where we live in a world where pretty much I can get anything on Amazon delivered tomorrow, button, button, button. But it seems like fashion releases, drops, sneaker drops, et cetera, are one of the few things left in e-commerce that are really they're really centered around exclusivity and around you know getting your place in line so to speak how important do you think that exclusivity is really to the growth of not only these product lines but i want to say like sneaker culture in general you know um I, I think it's such a big part of it at least from where i'm at looking in i keep losing out when i try to get new sneakers but um <laughs> yeah how do you think that exclusivity and really the positioning of these products like that helps grow these platforms yeah, so you know it's a great question, and I think to draw on the greater concept of exclusivity or scarcity, right? Which I think is the really the right way to look at exclusivity. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you got to go back to the beginning, which is like you know when when like sneaker culture in its in its beginning stages, not just like celebrating wearing sneakers, but like this like sneakers being valuable and like rare, almost like commodities, right? Is when like people started like finding like you know rare you know, Japanese colors of Nike shoes or these limited releases and things that weren't necessarily designed by Nike to be limited, but like by nature, they were just like in less quantity, right? And then that became a collector's culture, right? And it was about finding these rare pairs that there were less of and they weren't readily available, right? And then the brands then saw that and then they started to, you know, market into that where something happens organically and then they started to lean into this this kind of sub-community, right? Of like collectors and, and this niche community. And then they started to create product for that niche. And it became this, 
you know, this perceived scarcity in this, um, you know, so originally it was actually releasing things in very limited quantities. Now, a lot of these things that we think are limited are actually in mass quantities, and especially even something like Yeezy has, you know, massive, massive amount of, of inventory available. For some reason, it still has a an aftermarket value. So I think, you know, drop culture, perceived exclusivity is really about putting the bottleneck around the distribution. And you look at Supreme as a great example, which is, it's an amazing brand, and they've done a great job about releasing their product in a cadence and making it seem like it's it's rare and scarce. But I think Supreme, the last time they reported, they did over half a billion dollars of revenue. And that was a few years ago. And that seems like, you know, quote unquote, an exclusive brand. We look at another brand like Volcom, which most people would consider as a mass market mall action sports brand, was only doing around 200 million in revenue. So seemingly there's two or three X the amount of Supreme versus Volcom in the marketplace, but it's the bottleneck they create around the distribution, whether it's releasing for a limited time or only releasing through these very limited sales channels like their flagship stores or their online site that makes it seem like there's less of it and then creates the frenzy and creates the marketing narrative and the hysteria around the release. So this 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 construct of creating perceived exclusivity, even though there may be a lot of good goods actually in the market and the bottleneck of where and how you sell these things and actually putting constraints. And like you said, it's the opposite of what Amazon is doing. So what Amazon is doing is buy what you want, when you want, how you want it, 24 hours a day, it's always available. So just by like, you know, putting something behind a curtain, you know, behind the, the velvet rope at the nightclub, it seems more special. It's everyone's selling the same commodity goods, but it's it's the way in which you romanticize the release. And you know, network and many other players are really you know focused on on this. And now, what many of the things we sell are actually in limited quantities, and and there's ten or a hundred x the demand for that good that we have. But a lot of what you're seeing in the marketplace is actually just true, truly a facade as a marketing ploy to get people excited. And um, and if you read uh, Seth Godin's book Purple Cow, which is one of the only marketing books I've ever read, he talks about you know if you're at a you know a mall and every you know, retailer there has a glass window display with their mannequins in the thing. You just kind of walk past and you stop looking. If one retailer paints out their window display, you know, with black paint and then just puts a little circle and puts a sign that says, don't look, everyone's going to run over that window display and look, right? And it's that idea. It's like something about it made everybody excited. And I think network is doing a little bit of both, right? We're you know, helping create value and entertainment and romanticizing releases by focusing on very few exciting products. And in some cases, there are very limited, but I would say most of what you're seeing in the marketplace outside of, of network is is actually not limited or not exclusive. It's just the perception of. It's interesting, right? Like this perception of scarcity. And for a massive consumer example, it's uh, like McDonald's and the McRib, where they will turn that on and off as a social trigger to say, hey, come. But then they actually sell more Big Macs, more quarter pounders, more fries when they you know, when they bring it back for an exclusive time. So it's interesting to hear it would be the same effect psychologically with the consumer when we're looking at, oh, hey, there's this limited item. I'm going to go get that. But then meanwhile, right, there's all of these other items that I can go and, and shop for those as well. So very I'm interesting. So, I'm so happy you brought that up. I, you know, I didn't usually think of McDonald's as context, but they are definitely a master of that with the McRib. And another company, and I don't know if they still do this, but I used to think about Disney. Like they did this thing where like, you know, they wouldn't be selling like, you know, at first it was DVDs or cassettes. Now in the digital world, where they do, but I don't know if you remember this for a long time, they wouldn't always sell like Little Mermaid. They'd only like pull it out of the vault like once every two years and sell it, right? Like they would actually create like a perceived scarcity around like their archive of, of their most classic animation movies for sale in the market when people were buying physical media, right? And 
I think, you know, brands like Nike and, you know, Adidas and some of the best brands in the world, Supreme, have actually adapted some of these strategies. And I think, you know, it is, a, it is an amazing marketing strategy to create perceived scarcity around anything, even if it's a sandwich. <laughs> yeah, right. It's, it's one of those things where you can boil it down to the sandwich and then work back. And go, oh, right. Yeah, Disney did do that. You're saying that. And I'm remembering them. Hey, we're a special release of The Lion King. And it's like, what? Okay. Very, very cool. Now, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about building a team. So you have uh, a quote here that I got, which is, my goal is to become a master of hiring the best people. Because it's one thing that you learned, you're never going to achieve your goals unless you attract the right talent. So I've heard this from a lot of high performers, executives, pretty much having this aha moment of like, oh, I need to hire great people who are great at things, you know, all around me. And that's going to elevate the whole company. Talk to me about I guess, are there any specific strategies that you use around talent acquisition, hiring that you think, you know, someone who's starting to grow their team could really benefit from? Yeah, no, this is a great question. I have a very unorthodox career path and I have a very unorthodox way that I approach everything that I do and particularly hiring. And I think there's multiple strategies that I would implore and I'll kind of give you what I did right and wrong in the past, which is, you know, I've had various startups over the last 20 years that led me here to network today. And how I approach what I'm doing now is very different than what I did in the past. When I was 19 years old and running my first startup, and I was completely inexperienced in business, you know, the idea of creating a great company culture and, you know, hiring great people, I didn't have any money to hire any great people, right? So I hired the people that were close to me. So literally, nine out of 10 people that work for me were my friends from high school, right? It's like, hey, you know, you're my best friend, you're going to come work for me, right? And in some cases, that blew up in my face, many, many times ruined friendships, you know, hurt the business. And in, in some cases, some of my friends actually ended up being like some amazing entrepreneurs and some amazing workers and still to this day have, you know, high level executive roles and some of them have been just as successful or more successful than me. So, you know, I, I learned the hard way that you need some people on the team who are invested in it emotionally with you. And you need some people who are, you know, the best at what they do. And I still try to blend that into the way I hire today. So I would say like, you know, there's one person on my team today who's our uh, VP of operations, who literally is a, you know, this is really his first major job experience is working with me. And I met him through, he walked up to me while I was getting juice in the morning on my way to work and said he recognized me from some of the work I had done with a, with Agenda and just got to talking. And he was a, you know, first year college student. And he ended up interning for me his year of college and just kind of stuck with me. And it's just this like gifted, you know, like just like, you know, um, operator. And literally in a three-year period went from being my intern to being a VP level. And he is one of the hardest working, smarting people I've ever met and i'll say his name ashton right and i get people like that right i literally am open to bringing in people at a low level role and giving them a shot and actually throwing work at them and allowing people to just learn by doing and some people i believe just have it in them and it doesn't require any formal education any formal work experience and you know i because i was that right if i can't be open to myself giving myself a shot then then what am i doing right that's kind of like I would say 30 to 50% of my hiring strategy is just like getting great young people around who are passionate, who, who kind of like are interested about what we're doing and seeing if they make it and letting the cream rise to the top. And that's one. And then the second half is like finding people who bring real value to the table from their other work experience. But that's also tricky because the trap I've got in there is a lot of people look good on paper. And, you know, I'll just say someone who worked at whatever Nike or some other Apple, right? Like, you think, oh, that's you, know, you came from the best brand in the world, so they must only recruit the best talent. 
But sometimes I've gotten a 50-50 result with people who come from huge companies, which is some of them are truly amazing. And some of them, the company was amazing. And it's it's really easy to be great when you work at a great brand because every phone call you make, you know, if you're in sales at the best brand in the world, when you call someone to sell something, everyone says yes. So is it is it the brand that was great or was it that salesman that was great? So I've had some real misses where I've, you know, brought in the person who had that, you know, the best looking resume on paper and they interviewed great and they were great people. But like, you know, when you put them in an environment where you have to create something from scratch, they were completely lost because they're used to just having every phone call they make. People just, you know, lay, you know, say yes and roll over and they have huge budgets. So it's like, you know, you also have to try to find other people who, you know, didn't have that same experience, but they have, you know, the scrappy experience. They've, you know, have the startup route or have had their own startups. Like I, I, a lot of times like to find people who have their own startups that have failed because those people have seen adversity. They know what it's like to work hard. They know what it's like to be told no, to fail repeatedly. Like I think having success on your resume is just as important as having multiple failures on your resume. I, like I would take just as many of those people as the successful people. Well, so if I answer your question correctly, that's kind of my purview on that. No, I think that's great. I think a couple things to take out of that one, right? Is like, hey, send the elevator back down. Right. Like you said something really important there where like if you weren't willing to take a chance on yourself on a younger version of you, right, then what are we doing? And then two, I think past wins. So two, we're looking at people when you bring somebody in from, you know, Google or, or you know, name yeah. Fortune <laughs> five hundred company. Exactly. Um, when you bring them in, okay, past wins will get you in the door, but like what are you gonna do today and tomorrow to keep you here? Right. And to help grow the company and to be and to be part of a team that is has this DNA that's, you know, scrappy and is really looking at high growth initiatives, not only personally to be a learner, but looking at revenue, looking at like growing a team, all of those things that are so important when you're in that, you know, early stage of a business. So I'm right there with you. You said that quote, and really I, between all my last companies for the last 20 years to network, which is just the last two years, I went through a dramatic shift in my mind, just about like, I wanted to build a different type of company and I wanted to build a company as be much bigger than anything I've ever built before. So I also had to change what I was doing. And before I was a, you know, the worst type of micromanager, I had my hand in everything and I wanted to do everything. And I have an opinion about everything from graphic design to marketing to this, to that. And, and, and that's good that I have an opinion, but before I also scared away really talented people because I wanted to be involved in every department and I had to go through a mental shift going from an independent company mindset where I was, you know, the leader and didn't have outside investors in most of my businesses to doing something that was a venture back company where I have, you know, a higher responsibility and fiduciary duty where I had to really open myself up to hiring people who are stronger than me in other areas and allowing them to shine and really push the power down. And that was also, you know, big, big mental shift for me in my career. You know, it was a big difference between the last 20 years and where I'm going in the future. It's every entrepreneur, right? We think we're the best at all the parts and we don't want to give, giving up control is something when I speak with entrepreneurs, especially who are seasoned, they're like, I wish I did that earlier. I wish I learned that lesson earlier. You know, that was I realizing, hey, I was the bottleneck on my own company's growth because I needed to have an opinion on this creative, which was really inconsequent, you know, that like when I actually brought in creative people to make those decisions. So it's uh, it's interesting to hear those stories, you know, over and over again. And then cool to hear you having those thoughts go through your head to be like, okay, cool. I need to like, let this go. I need to focus on the strategy, right? I need to be driving the ship, not down rowing or fixing something in the engine room. I need to let people who I've hired to do that. And I need to focus on driving the ship because if I step away from the, from the controls, where are we going? Right. Um, Absolutely. 
Cool. Well, Aaron, I, I appreciate you taking the time today, man. Before I let you go, let people know where they can find out more about um, network and uh, connect with you online. Yeah. Um, network is uh, mostly in a, uh, a mobile app. So you can find it on the uh, Apple App Store or the Google Play Store, just N-T-W-R-K, like network with no vowels. And um, and uh, you can find us there and you can find us on Instagram network. And uh, I'm uh, not a public facing entrepreneur in most senses. So you can't find me anywhere except for here on your podcast. And, um, you know, I appreciate people listening to me uh, jab for 30 minutes. Very cool. Uh, guys, I will put the link to network in the show notes so you guys can go and download that on Google Play or Apple. Aaron, thanks again for coming on. I really appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. All right, everyone. That's it for this episode. I'm your host, Jordan Shelton. As always, please hit like, share, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Um.